If you guys would not mind opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation, we started the book of Revelation several, uh, probably a couple months ago now, and we are finally making our way into about chapter 5. Last week we started kind of this heavenly scene in chapter 4 having to do with heaven, what heaven looked like, uh, some of the beauties of heaven, and uh, hopefully that was impacting upon your life, and hopefully God used it to speak in your life. Um, What we're going to be looking at now today is continuing sort of that same vision, that same glimpse, if you would, of what heaven was like, but it gets a little bit more fine-tuned today as the vision sort of begins to focus more so upon the central theme or the central person, if you would, in heaven. Uh, We looked last week that sort of the preeminent type of uh, symbol or item that was there in the heavenly scene was what? The throne. The throne. In fact, we looked at it this way, and we said basically the word throne, thronos, appears more in that chapter in sort of concentrated form than any other uh, chapter in the entire Bible. So chapter 4, that heavenly scene, is about the throne of God. Uh, chapter 5, we're going to be taking a look at Jesus. Jesus sort of appears there on the throne, and we begin to see the way that John identifies Jesus. I think some of you will be amazed when you take a look at what Jesus is like or how he reveals himself there on the throne. And so with that, we're going to begin to take a look at some aspects with regard to this. And before we jump in, um, we're going to start basically at verse 1. And we're going to jump right in and begin to take a look at it. So if you guys don't have a Bible, make sure that you get one. Uh, we will have this, uh, the verses there up on the screen. But we're going to start in verse 1. It says this. And then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll that was written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So John, carrying on this vision that he saw in chapter 4, as it, again, just sort of continues, our Bibles have chapters and verses in them. When John wrote this, he didn't write any chapters or verses in it. So this is just one consecutive vision that John has. So John notices from this heavenly scene, he notices the one who sits upon the throne, which is obviously God. But again, notice, we said this last week, that John doesn't, he doesn't define what God looks like. He doesn't give any types of definition or description of what God looks like. And the reason for that because God does not have a body. God is intangible. And so what John does is he describes various colors that sort of emanate from the Father, or various aspects that sort of emanate from God himself, although he does not describe any type of form. But what John does notice uh, in this vision today is he notices that there's a throne in the hand of God. There's a throne in the hand of God. And John describes it as sort of a double-sided scroll Uh, that's written on the front and on the back, and then it's sealed with with these seven seals. So I found some pictures on Google, and I want to show you, just in case you had no idea what a scroll was, this is what a scroll looks like, probably something similar to that, although not exactly, because the scroll that John sees has writing on the outside as well as on the inside. And then the other scroll that you see that's sort of wrapped up, it's got a little seal on it, a little red, nice ribbon type of a seal on it. I'm certain that the ribbon that John probably saw, the seal that he saw probably was not red, it wasn't velvety and didn't come from the Hallmark store, but this one did. And uh, one of the reasons why, as I looked all around the internet to try to find some sort of images that looked like a scroll that also had seals on it, is that most ancient scrolls that archaeologists have uncovered don't have seals on them. One of the reasons is because the seals were made up of different type of material than the actual parchment than, that the scrolls were. And a lot of times they just sort of deteriorated or they were opened. So the seals, the seals were no longer on the scrolls. And so you kind of had to use your imagination, and this is kind of what somebody obviously did. However, uh, John's scroll that he notices that's in the hand of God has seven of these seals on it. And what we're going to begin to see in chapter 6 
uh, the week after next, after we do the view, I'm really excited about next week. I really feel like God's going to do some really cool things. Uh, I will be teaching next week, but I won't be teaching out of Revelation. Really feel like I just want you guys to be on board and be excited about what God's doing. He's doing a lot of great things. But as we get back into the book of Revelation the following week in chapter 6, we're going to be taking a look at this bigger picture as the scroll begins to be unfolded. You're going to see these uh, seven seals opening up. Chapter 6 is about each of these different consecutive seals being opened up. And then the seventh seal sort of breaks forth into another uh, judgment that is going to begin to unfold uh, there in the chapter. But with that, what I want to basically point out is that there's been a lot of speculation as to what this scroll is. I said from the very beginning, our main purpose in looking at the book, and the thing that we're going to keep going back to, is really that the book of Revelation is a revelation or an unveiling of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is. We want to see Jesus in the book of Revelation. We want to see him for his full glory and who he is and what he's like. And so what we want to do, also be careful of doing, is not getting hung up or sort of going off on rabbit trails and all sorts of endless types of speculation. I said from the very beginning that the book of Revelation is one of those books that a lot of uh, Bible teachers and pastors and scholars and theologians for the past, not just the past like 100 years, but the past 2,000 years, have been endlessly speculating all sorts of nuanced types of concepts that arise in the book of Revelation, trying to figure them out. Quite frankly, a lot of them end up in great argument and discussion and debate. We don't want to go there. What we really want to try to do is, again, we want to see Jesus. So when we come across certain passages that might be a little bit difficult, might um, be a little bit vague or ambiguous, we want to be careful not to spend a lot of time speculating as to what's going on. So with that kind of raises the question, what is this scroll? What is this scroll? Because John does not explicitly describe or tell us what the scroll is. Again, we're sort of left with some degree of speculation. So with that being said, I want to really be careful. And I want to say, I'll give you what I think the answer is. But again, I just simply say it's speculation. So if you write me, you email me, Facebook me, whatever, and you're like, that's wrong, I'm not going to argue back. All right, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll let go of the rope. All right, I won't fight with you on that. Um, I will say, let's keep Jesus central on what, what this is. So with that being said, there's some uh, scholars' opinions and ideas, speculation as to what the identity of this scroll is. Um, some think it might be the Lamb's Book of Life. Some scholars may have, over the years, have thought that it's the Lamb's Book of Life. There is a book that ends up showing up later on in the book of Revelation that is the Lamb's Book of Life. It's in this book. That everyone who is uh, belonging to God, their name is in this book. There are those whose names are not found written in the book. They don't belong to God. So some think that this might be the Lamb's book of life. Uh, Some scholars, secondly, think that this might be the Torah. And the reason for their belief that it may be the Torah is because the Torah is known for having pronouncements of curses as well as pronouncements of blessings. And you'll see... In the book of Revelation, there will be various occasions of pronouncements of curses, uh, as well as some blessings toward the end. Again, another plausible possibility. A, for, a third one is that some people think that it might be like a will or a testament. Um, it's possible that they draw this from kind of Old Testament conclusions or pictures or imagery, that if a father had something to give to his son, he would will it in a document. The document would be scrolled up like this and sealed. Uh, maybe not so much with seven seals, uh, but this is a unique scroll. And oftentimes, uh, the father would seal it 
and then give it to the son based upon certain stipulations. I mean, if the father had a massive goat farm, he wanted to make sure that the son is not going to sell all the goats and go buy a palace, right? So dad's going to be like, look, I got a trillion goats, and I'll give you all my goats as long as you don't sell them and go buy a palace. Is that good? All right, that's good. And then he'll give him the deed. He'll give him the will. Um, that's possible. Uh, fourth one is this. Some believe that it might be like a title deed to the earth or sort of history itself in culmination. Uh, some scholars derive this from uh, passages like in Deuteronomy or Isaiah or some of the other prophets talk about a title deed um, and would draw upon the possibility that when God originally created the earth, he basically uh, deeded it or gave it over to Adam and Eve uh, to be fruitful and to multiply, that the earth belonged in a sense uh, or it was to be stewarded by them to uh, have dominion over the earth and to, by way of culture, to cultivate the earth, to build things, to uh, exercise the arts, to make musical instruments, to build, you know, beautiful buildings and to, uh, you know, get farming going and raise cattle and, you know, all the things that you can imagine. But Adam and Eve, uh, before they really got, you know, business off the ground, uh, they end up sinning. And they, in many ways, sort of gave, if you would, uh, ownership over to Satan. This is, this is very common, very popular belief that they basically deeded it over to the enemy. And so Paul kind of picks up on ideas like this in the New Testament. He says, like, Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He has authority over this earth, and he destroys, uh, but he, the, his authority is a supposed authority. It's not an ultimate authority. It's not an actual authority, because actually... God has authority, right? God owns the earth. God possesses the earth. Um, it just seems like Satan, because Satan is being given the allowance to rule in a lot of ways and destroy. Um, and yet that is, Satan's on a short leash. There's a time that will come, that the book of Revelation seems to unfold, that all of this will be brought back in the hands of God, and then God will then give it to a son, who then his son will give it to his redeemed servants. That's very possible. The fifth one is this, is that it's like a heavenly book that contains basically God's uh, redemptive uh, plan. That what you're going to see sort of are events that are unfolded. And like chapter 6, again, is another one of those examples that uh, it could be a future uh, situation that ends up taking place, which I think it is, but also at the same time, it also seems to read like a narrative of history. You're going to read about pestilences. You're going to read about um, earthquakes and things that we've seen even in our own day that have wrecked havoc and destruction and devastation upon civilizations and upon people. Uh, but that what really the book is, some would say that it's, it's a book describing or chronicling God's uh, historic, redemptive involvement and plan for planet Earth and bringing back His purposes back into this world. Um, I personally think it's probably maybe a mixture of five and six, or four and five. Sorry, I had an extra one, you didn't even know it. Four and five, that maybe it's some sort of a title deed that also carries within it sort of a historical drama of redemption that's unfolding, that talks about God really bringing things back to what they should be. That's what I think may be happening. So whatever the case is, that there is this scroll that's in the hand of God. John describes that. And so what he then begins to notice, in verse 2, it says, Then I saw an angel, I, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? 
And then there was no one under, there was no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth that was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And then John says, and then I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open a scroll or look upon it. So the whole idea, I think what ends up happening is this angel, sort of in this vision or in this dream or this reality that John's experiencing in some sort of type of way, uh, esoteric type way, that he recognizes that this angel basically asks this uh, rhetorical question. Now, obviously, the angel knows the answer to this, but he's perhaps asking it on behalf of John. And John realizes, in his mind, he thinks there's nobody. There's nobody found worthy. And John is overwhelmed with a sense of, of like intense sorrow. And then it says he begins to cry. And the word cry there in the Greek, in the original, is very strong. John begins to sob convulsively. And it's interrelated to this idea, in, G- in John's mind at least, that there's nobody found worthy. So the reality in John's mind, there's this overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Where's the one? Who is the one that's found worthy to take the scroll, to unloosen its seals, to open this thing, to actually get God's redemptive plan moving and happening and working and taking it forward to where it needs to be? For whatever reason, John thinks that there's nobody, and he ends up in a place of just absolute tears, a sense of hopelessness. And then John recognizes in about verse 5, and one of the elders said to him, says, don't weep anymore. And then he begins to reveal to him, to John, who is actually capable of taking the scroll and loosing the seals and opening up this particular document. And it says this, And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he's conquered so that he can open a scroll and loose its seven seals. So what ends up happening here is this angel basically announces to John uh, two very rich uh, titles that have to do with Jesus. The first of which is he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a reference to a verse in the book of Genesis uh, when Jacob died. Jacob was, was about to die, I should say. He gathers together all of his sons and he begins to sort of, in kind of a prophetic way, he would lay his hands upon them and sort of pronounce over them certain blessings and whatnot. When he gets to his, one of his sons named Judah, and he basically begins to say to Judah, Judah, you're like a, you're like a lion. Out of you is going to come this lion. And, you know, probably not really knowing the fullness of what that was all about, but the idea of a lion carries the idea of royalty, of strength, of valor, of power, kind of ferocity. All of these kind of words would sort of describe the activity of a lion. It's kind of the same way in our day-to-day. You know, you know we think of a lion, we think of something that's uh, ferocious and scary and powerful. We even call it, you know, the king of the jungle for a reason. Because it, it's, it's powerful. It's got a lot of strength and might. And we normally wouldn't want to wrestle with one. There's something about a lion that we just recognize has profound power and strength. And so uh, this angel says to John that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion that comes from Judah, is the one who's been found worthy. Then he begins to sort of fine-tune that or focus that. I almost kind of look at it like this. It's like saying someone in California, but more specifically San Luis Obispo is found worthy. It's just like John kind of shrinks down and sort of fine-tunes, focuses even more so upon the address of who this person is. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah, but in particular, he comes from the lineage of King David. He comes from the lineage of King David. You know those chapters in the Bible that most of us would just pass over, genealogies? Convenient of Matthew, if you ever read through that, you're just, you just kind of skim through it, and maybe you just don't even read over it at all, or if you do, 
It kind of reads like a phone book. Nobody wants to read it. They're just boring. Um, The reason why those chapters are there, believe it or not, is because they are specifically put there to give a lineage tracing Jesus all the way back to like King David. Because they knew that the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God was going to send to redeem the world, to restore all things, to set things that are broken back to right again, was going to come through Judah and was going to come ultimately through King David. Who, you know, that's, that's where he came from. And so the whole point that I think is significant about this is that Jesus is identified as the one who comes from David, but he's also identified as the lion that comes from the tribe of Judah. And so John now is curious. His curiosity is peak, and he wants to see this lion that's come from the tribe of Judah. In his mind, he's thinking greatness and power and strength. Now remember, John saw this incredible vision in chapter 1 about Jesus. sees this unbelievable sort of unfolding message of what Jesus looked like, and he's got this like brass belt kind of a fire. His eyes are like flames of fire glowing in the dark, kind of like arc welding. You know, you can't look at it and, you know, your eyes just get burned. He sees this vision of Jesus. So I think in John's mind, he kind of has this preconceived idea that the one that he's going to find, the one that he's going to see that is, quote-unquote, found worthy to take the scroll, to loose the seals, is going to have sort of some sort of profound presence and strength and might and ferocity about him. And so then John turns around, hoping to look at whoever this is, and then it goes on to say in verse 6, and then between the throne... And the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So in a very interesting act of irony, rather than John seeing this ferocious lion ready to just wipe out and to destroy his enemies, he ends up turning around and he notices a lamb. Okay, I took a picture a while back of a lamb. That's a lamb. Somewhere down by California Men's Colony. And I got a tick from taking that lamb. Taking a picture of it. I got home, felt something on my head. It was a tick. Because I was laying down in the tall grass. But I got a nice picture of a lamb. Nobody is afraid of lambs. All right? You never read stories about a sheep attacking, you know, a little schoolboy. You still read, I mean, nobody looks at a lamb and thinks, scary. Nobody. In fact, you know, when your kids are having a hard time sleeping, this is why we tell them to count sheep and not lions. We don't want them to count lions because we want them to sleep. We don't want them to be afraid. We want them to count sheep because they're cute and cuddly and snuggly. And, you know, they're, they're, and the idea is that there's something about a lamb that's very vulnerable. So John notices this lamb. He's hoping to find a lion, strength, might, power, ferocity. He turns around and he notices a lamb vulnerable, uh, meek, gentle, slaughtered. Here's about a conquering lion, turns around and he sees a slaughtered lamb. This is the interesting twist or type of irony that you're going to end up seeing sort of unfolding throughout uh, the book of Revelation. I'll give you another example. We'll actually come back to it a little bit later towards the end. Acts, uh, Revelation chapter 6. It's going to talk about, it's going to use this phrase. Again, another very ironic type of a phrase. It'll say um, that there'll be a group of people on the face of the planet saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's kind of funny, to be really honest with you. It's like, 
the wrath of a lamb? Has anybody ever seen a lamb angry? But the point is this, is that oftentimes we have these preconceived ideas of the way that things are. But the reality is, the way that we think things are, are not really the way that they are, but the way they're perceived. And so the way that we perceive things are oftentimes inaccurate with the way they really are. And that's exactly the way it was with John. He's hoping to see a conquering lion, a powerful lion, a kingly type of a figure, but instead he ends up seeing a vulnerable, slaughtered lamb. And the very king that he hears about, that has the ability, that has the power, that has the authority, that's been granted the ability to take the scroll, to loose its seals, to unfold this this document, whichever it is. The way that he conquers is not by ferocity, not by might, not by strength in terms of destruction, but by humbly, meekly, gently entering into this world and taking upon himself the full weight of pain, suffering, and hardship there on the cross. That's the basic gist of what John recognizes, that the idea of the lamb being slaughtered means that he was, he was defeated, that he was destroyed. However, his defeat wasn't a real defeat. It was perceived as a real defeat, but the reality is that Jesus rose again from the dead, conquering death. Let me give you a couple examples of how this idea of lamb or sheep uh, sort of appears in Scripture, sort of in various motifs. Give you an example. One of them, we see the idea of lamb or sheep appearing throughout Scripture having to do sort of with the sacrificial mentality, the idea of sacrifice, as in the Passover. Uh, they were to take a lamb and sacrifice it, that they're part of the temple for many, many years. The way that they would atone or cover for their sin, where they would take lambs. If you, as a human being, lived in Israel back in the day, and you wanted to be made right with God, the way that you wanted to have right relationship with God, the means by which God said to be made right was to bring a sacrifice. So you would take either a sheep from your flock, or if you didn't have a flock because you raised cows and, you know, were, had dairy cows, you know, you raised cows for milk, and you didn't have any sheep. You would go next door, and you'd get a sheep, or you'd buy a sheep, or you'd go into the temple area, and you'd get a sheep, and you'd take that sheep to the priest, and the priest would then slit its throat and drain its blood. That was the idea. The concept behind lamb or sheep, for the most part, was always connected with, intertwined with this broader idea of sacrifice. Another way in which they would have viewed uh, sheep or lambs uh, had to do with God's people. In Isaiah chapter 53, I think somewhere around verse uh, 6, God says, all my people are like sheep. They're all like sheep that have gone astray. God actually describes or has this link and connection between his people that are prone to wander, like the song says, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love, and sheep, because sheep have this propensity to wander off. To get lost, hence the need for a shepherd, a good shepherd, a shepherd who loves them. He's not out to fleece them, he's not out to barbecue them, they're on the side of the job. He's out to shepherd them and to love them and to care for them. So God has sort of this imagery to depict the relationship that he has with the sheep. He's shepherd, they're a sheep, they maybe wander, but because he's a good shepherd, He's a very good shepherd. He's actually willing to leave the 99 in the flock to go out after the one because the one's lost. 
and it's going to die. And because he loves that one sheep, he will do whatever he can because he's a good shepherd to find the sheep to bring it back into the rest of the fold. The third way in which the word sheep or lamb oftentimes appears in the Old Testament is also in connection with, say, for example, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. I'll read you the verse. It says this. Uh, he, was opposed, or he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened out his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened out his mouth. And the Jews would look at this verse and attach with it some sort of a broader picture of prophecy, meaning they would realize that this, they believed that there was going to be a suffering servant. One day there was going to be the servant that was going to come in the name of God, or name of Jehovah, and that he would suffer immensely. Uh, Jews today don't see this, for the most part, as messianic. They don't look at it as being an embodiment of a Messiah. They look at it as the Jews, as a nation. They suffered under Hitler. They suffered under various regimes and despots who caused all sorts of affliction and pain for them. Uh, but the reality is, is that all New Testament scholars, all New Testament writers, looked at this verse and said that this verse, Isaiah chapter 53, was directly in connection with Jesus. Jesus was not just a shepherd, but he was a shepherd that became a sheep. And like a sheep, like one of us, likened to one of us, associated to us, died. And like a sheep, didn't open his mouth, he didn't cuss people out, didn't yell at people, didn't call down judgments upon them, didn't call for angels to come and destroy them. Jesus willingly let himself go forward to the point of death on the cross. That's what Isaiah chapter 53 is saying. And so this concept, this motif, this picture of a sheep also applies to the Messiah that's going to come. John the Baptist, when he was introducing Jesus, even before Jesus started his ministry in John chapter 1, about verse 29, John said this, Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb, he's the Lamb that comes from God. He takes away the sins of the world. So what you see already happening in the New Testament is they take sort of this motif of lamb and they connect it with this other picture of sacrifice and, another big word for you, atonement, meaning the covering of sin. That Jesus was a lamb to die, not just because he was a good teacher and people didn't like him, but Jesus died sacrificially just like the sheeps over Passover time were to die sacrificially. Their job was meant to bring about a covering over or a passing over of God over their sin, a cleansing, a washing away of the filth and the defilement and the oppressive nature of sinfulness. That John the Baptist's whole point, the belief in the teaching within the New Testament scriptures is that Jesus is a lamb who died for us. Do you get that? I mean, we can say that. We're really good evangelicals, aren't we? We're like, Jesus died for me. And sometimes we can say that so glibly, it just never hits us. I want you to feel that. Jesus died for me. He died for you. It wasn't just an act that he had to do. It wasn't something that he came because he was obligated to do. But it was something that he did out of deep love for you, it was the extent of his love that he had left his heavenly throne, stepped into our world, took upon the form of flesh and blood, in this case, became like a sheep, vulnerable, suffered, and died. As a side note, I want to say something, specifically to you guys. I said this last week. 
I'm going to reiterate it. I think it's good. Oftentimes, guys can talk about, you know, realizing their role in the house. If you're married, if one of these days you're going to be married, if you've got a girlfriend. Guys, you need to understand, there's 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 a type of a metaphor that God is calling you to fulfill. If you're married, you got to feel this. you got to understand this. This is why Paul the Apostle writes about this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The metaphor that you're called to fulfill is one in which you end up looking like God. And I would have to say that most men err on either one side or the next. Men are either very lion-like, king-like, authoritative. They know how to rule their domain well. They know how to mark out their territory. They know how to be strong. They know how to be authoritative. They know how to establish order and uh, rulership and leadership within a domain. And there are other men that are very lamb-like. They're very docile. They're very passive. They don't have much strength, perhaps. Maybe they're not much of a person that is, uh, you know, capable of leadership or leading but what I want you to understand is in the person of Christ, you've got both. You've got lamb-like tendencies, which is vulnerability, suffering, willing to be humble and meek. And then you've got lion-like properties, which is full of strength and might. If you're a man, if you're a man, you want to look like Christ, you want to look like God, you've got to learn how to exercise both. You men that know how to be good kings, lion-like, you got to learn how to be lamb-like. you got to learn how to get off of your kingly throne, to lay aside certain rights that you think that you deserve in order to be a humble servant for your bride. Men that are passive, that are vulnerable, that are always crying and drinking decaf, you need to learn how to be man-like, to be a leader, to stand up and be strong, to learn how to lead well, to learn how to be a strong capable leader that brings glory to God. You need both if you want to look like God. This is, this Paul derives all of his theology for a man in a marriage from Jesus. Lion and lamb. John beholds a lion, but he turns around and he sees a lamb that's slain. I wanted to take a look at real briefly this picture of slain. Uh, the word slain, uh, spadzo is the Greek word. Um, it appears several times in the New Testament, most of which have to do with just the way that you think about it, being slaughtered, being destroyed. But in the early church, uh, the, the main Bible that most people used was called what was, um, the Septuagint. It was a version of the Bible that was actually translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. This was done at about 70 AD. And this is sort of the preeminent type of Bible in which they would oftentimes read. It was... Uh, Septuagint, which means that they took all of the Greek words or the Hebrew words and translated them into Greek. So I found this really fascinating, but the very first time in the entire uh, Greek New Testament or Greek Old Testament, I should say, that the word spadzo actually appears in terms of being slaughtered is actually found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 10. It's a very interesting parallel type of a story, and here's what it says. It says, and Abraham reached out his knife, and he took his knife, or reached out his hand, took out his knife, And he was about to slaughter his son. It's the story of a father who took his only son. And in the text it literally says his only beloved son. And he was about to sacrifice him. It's literally the picture. The Old Testament type of God taking his own son and slaughtering his son. 
that on the throne, on the throne of God today is a lamb. A human being in a resurrected body, Jesus, John sees him as this lamb that had been slain. The point in time in which this references cannot be anything else other than the cross. What I want you to understand is in heaven, throughout all eternity, the number one event that has literally changed the course of all history, that if you're a Christian here, has actually changed your life, whether you knew it or not, hopefully you all know it, that will ultimately be the source of all of heaven's songs, of worship, of everything that transpires throughout the entire universe. On a universal level, I'm not just talking about humanity, human beings, I'm talking about animals, I'm talking about angels, I'm talking about created, all created order will, will literally be centered around the cross. That Jesus died. And John identifies him as a lamb that was slammed, slaughtered. It was the cross that literally is at the center of all of God's redemptive work. You guys, I want you to understand this. This is why the cross has to be preached in the church today. Has to be understood in our lives. It has to be central in our theology, in our worship, in our marriages. I mean, what I'm trying to say is this, is that if you don't understand the impact and the power and the profound nature of the cross, then your theology will not only be pretty messed up, but the rest of your life will be messed up. This is why I literally say, if you're trying to figure out how to be a good husband, and if you're not being a good husband, I'm just simply telling you straight up, it's because your theology about the cross is messed up. If you're a mom, and you don't understand the nature of how to be a good mom, it's because your theology about the cross is messed up. If you're a boss, you're trying to run your business well, and all your employees keep leaving because they hate you, it honestly probably has something to do with because of the fact you don't understand the cross. The cross, if you're having a hard time trying to figure out, how do I worship? How do I worship God? How do I give to God? How do I live generous lives for God and for his church? Guys, it's the cross. It's the cross. you got to understand the impact and the nature and the profound reality of the cross. It's the cross that will be the source of all songs, all worship, all praise, all glory, all honor, all delight, all sights, all sounds, all symphony in heaven. It's the cross. That's why John notices that there is one who's found worthy. It's the lamb who has been slain. That's what John notices. I'm going to kind of move on from there. Basically finish up. I'm going to read this verse to you guys in Hebrews chapter 8. I think it's really important, significant to understand this in light of maybe even asking the questions, why? Why? This is always one of those questions. Why did this have to happen? Why was there suffering? Why did these things transpire and take place? Especially in light of things like Haiti, trying to understand why. Why has God not done anything? How come he has not intervened? Why is there problems in this world? Why are there problems in your life? Why are there sufferings and difficulties that you find yourself engaged with? And the question that almost always ends up at some point creeping its way into our thinking is why is God so distant? Why does he not draw near? How can God not understand? Why does he not understand what I'm going through in my life? And what the writer of Hebrews writing to a bunch of Christians that are actually suffering in the early Christian world, 
They're asking the same questions that you and I oftentimes ask in this world. And here's what the writer of the Hebrews answers back to them. Believe it or not, it has to do with the lamb-like nature of Christ. And here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 8. At the present time, we do not see everything, or we don't see everything in subjection to him. That's obvious. We realize that the world's broken. Things break. Uh, Verse 9. But we do see him who for a little while, he was made a little bit lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. It's the lamb-like nature of Christ. We do see that Jesus came into this world. He suffered. He died. And then he rose again. So that, the grace, so that of the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You get that? It's basically saying Jesus died to taste death, to experience pain, suffering, torment, torture for all of us. And then he goes on, verse 10, he says, For it was fitting that he, for whom... And by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all one source. Next section goes on and say this. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery... For surely it's not for angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Here's what he's saying. Jesus came into this world not to help out angels. I mean, angels are these powerful beings. We saw these last week. But it's not what Jesus came for. He came literally for the sons of Abraham. That's you and I. It's you and I. He came for human beings. People like you and I. People that suffer. People that engage pain. People that know what depression's all about. People that know what it means to have hopes dashed. People that know what it means to have lives that can be very fragile and find themselves shattered against rocks. That's the type of people that Jesus came for. Jesus, it says, that it was necessary because you and I have flesh and blood. Therefore, it's necessary for God in order to be a good high priest that he himself also come to where we're at, which is taking upon flesh and blood. Does this make sense? This is why Jesus became a man. This answers the question as to, you know, why is God far away? Because he's really not. He came. He drew near. He knows the pain that we suffer. Take a look at the very last thing. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The whole point that the writer of Hebrews is saying is this, is that God is not far off. He's not distant. He's not in the dark as to what types of lives of suffering that we engage in. The poor people of Haiti, we can only try to understand what they've gone through. And the sources by which we understand it is through blog, through the media, through the news, through various types of uh, you know, podcasts, if you can hear anything like that. That's the best of what we're able to know. So how closely connected are we with those that are in Haiti? We're worlds apart. We really have no idea of the type of pain that they're suffering. You know the only people that know who that, the type of suffering that they're going through? Are people that have been able to have access to planes or roads to get into the country, to feel what they're feeling, to help them on their level. But even still that falls short because what Jesus does, he steps into our world takes upon flesh and blood, which is basically saying, I'll put on a suit that allows me to feel pain. 
and he allows himself to be subjected to his murders and his tortures, ultimately to the point of death, rises again from the dead, basically says, I've done all of this so that you know that you're not alone in your pain. And John recognizes that it's because of this that he alone is worthy to be worshipped and praised. Because he alone understands the pain that we feel. Do you see how great Jesus is? That's what he's saying. He's not a far off, distant, ambiguous, in the dark type of a God. He knows what we're going through because he stepped into our world. We finish up with this little section here. In verse 7, we begin to see sort of the response of these living creatures. Take a look at verse 7. It says, And when he opened the fourth seal, he heard the voice. Nope, wrong chapter. Verse 7. And when he, took this, when he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders that fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and then they sang a new song. Here's a song. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. So here's what John recognizes. The moment Jesus takes his scroll and begins to open, begins to look at it, begins to hold it in his hand, all of a sudden, this massive segment of heaven, these four creatures, the 24 elders, it says they fall on their faces and they begin to worship Jesus. It also tells us that they played instruments. They played a harp. You know, there's some churches in America today, mostly in America, that actually have strong convictions that say you cannot have music, musical instruments. To be really frank with you, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. In heaven, there's musical instruments. Where do they come from? God made them. God put them there. There's something about musical instruments that God says are so good, I want them in heaven. There's a great band in heaven. And God's saying, they play great music. And when, the, when they play the music, all the people that are listening, all the people that are joining in, they fall on their faces and they worship the Lamb. It goes on, it says, and they carry these bowls of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. But it's interesting that they use the phrase incense, because you think of incense as being the strong, uh, fragrant smell or pungent smell. So again, last week we looked at there's all these sights in heaven, these unbelievably, like profoundly, deeply saturated colors. This week we take a look and there's unbelievable smells that are going on in heaven, fragrances that we've never even smelled before. And there's songs that are being sung. They're writing new songs. This is one of the reasons why, I think as human beings, we like music so much. We love music. And the reality is, is the reason why we love music is because God originated music, God started music, God created music, and God created us as image bearers of, in his likeness to also be co-creators. This is why we create music. This is why some of you are gifted at writing. You write poetry. You're always journaling. You're always writing new stories or little narratives. And the reason for that is because you are made in the image of God. What you need to understand is God made you that way. And when you're redeemed and when you understand Christ and throughout all eternity, as Christ continues to reveal himself throughout all eternity, there will be new experiences that will be felt and there will be new songs that will be written out of those experiences. You know that's what music is? Music is made from people who've got profound experiences. You know, most of it's like you broke up with your girlfriend or your dog dies and you write another song. 
That's country music. And other people got other types of profound experiences, and they write things. They put it to music. They put it to rhythm or to rhyme, and it becomes music. But what I'm trying to say is this, is in heaven, there will be music. There will be musical instruments. There will be new experiences, and they will come forth from those who see the Lamb. We need people in this church. We love it when people in this church write new songs, write new music. We have amazing musicians in this church, to be really honest with you. And they're not just always the people that are leading music up here. I mean, we've got amazing musicians that lead worship regularly for us. I mean, to be really honest with you, I'm so overwhelmed full of thanksgiving to every single person that helps out and leads worship. We have amazing people. If you've never done so before, if you're appreciative, you should probably give them thanks once in a while. Just say, thanks for doing that. You're doing an amazing job. I appreciate what you do. It's awesome. They've been given gifts. But we've got other people in the church that write music, that write poetry, that write narratives and stories. And they are birthed out of experiences with Christ. You need to keep doing that. Do it for the glory of God. Do it as God reveals himself to you. Because in heaven, there will be music, there will be instruments, there will be song, there will be sights, there will be all these things that will be taking place, and it will be an amazing experience. We go on to see, as we wrap it up here in verse 11, it says this, And then I looked, and I heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Word is the Lamb who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And then the elders fell down. And they worshipped. What I want you to notice is this. There seems to be this revelation of God that keeps unfolding throughout eternity. And as God keeps unfolding bits and pieces of himself to his redeemed ones and even to angels, which are some sort of you know, creature and you know, heavenly type of angelic type being. Sometimes people ask, you know, are there going to be animals in heaven? Personally, I think there are. The book of Isaiah talks about there'll be wolves laying down with little kids. Little kids will be playing with snakes, and they're not going to bite them. So there's going to come a point when God will redeem all things. Sometimes people ask, is my dog going to be in heaven? I have no idea. But the reality is, is that there'll be some sort of animals in heaven because God created them all for the purpose of giving him praise. But we live in a world that's broken right now. Things are not in rhythm. Things are not the way they ought to be. But one day, God will make them the way they ought to be. And at the center of all of God's redemptive process and work is the slain lamb who died on Calvary. That's what I want you to understand. The last thing I want to say is this. There's this very interesting verse that comes up in chapter 6. Because we just simply saw in heaven this host of people that love Jesus They're absolutely moved by the grace and the power and the greatness of Christ. And it's as if they want to worship the Lamb. Worship Jesus the Lamb, the slain Lamb, who's given them life, who's bought them out of death, freed them from their slavery, and brought them into this phenomenal life of music and expression and art and beauty and glory and color. But in chapter 6, it talks about this group of people. It says, 
they will be shouting out and crying, saying, hide us from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. So there's this strange juxtaposition of those who love the Lamb and want the Lamb, and when they see the Lamb, they will worship the Lamb. They will give their expressions of praise. They will write new songs of worship to Him. And there are others that will say, Hide us from the face of the Lamb. We don't want to see his face. We don't want to have anything to do with his work or anything to do with his program or his redemptive processes. And the reality is this. In this room, in all humanity, there are two types of people. Those who love the Lamb. Those who recognize what the Lamb has done for them. How that he saved them. How that he's come into this world. He is identified with your pain. He's identified with your Uh, sorrow, your hardship, and is ultimately taken the very thing, I'm sweating like a Baptist preacher right now, and basically Jesus is coming into this world to save you by removing sin that destroys you and bringing you into true life, and there are others that will simply say, I don't want to have anything to do with it, I love my stuff, I love my idols, I love my sin, and the thought of looking at the face of the Lamb brings nothing but shame and sorrow. And they'll do everything that they can in their power to hide from the face of the Lamb. One brings death. The other brings life. You guys, I hope you see, just like the Bible says, in his presence is fullness of joy. I hope you feel that. I hope you know that. I hope you see that. That's what John reveals is that in the presence of God is something so profoundly beautiful, experiences that can only be hoped for or dreamed about in this world, and maybe periodically sampled. That's about it. And then they go. We have a little bit of a glimpse of it once in a while, maybe in a worship service, we catch it for about 15 minutes and it's over because the music's done, everybody's going home, and we're like, that was amazing, can we keep doing that again for another 20 minutes? year, two years, six years? And the answer is, you can't even handle it. Our lives can't handle it. But the reality is, heaven will be full of that. I hope you guys understand the love which with with God has entered into this world to redeem lost sheep, to save you. It's his love for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus came. He left his throne like a king, like a conquering lion. He left his throne of glory, stepped into our world like a lamb awaiting the slaughter. Jesus was slaughtered. But he rose again from the dead, conquering the grave, then went back to the right hand of the Father like a slaughtered human being. So throughout all eternity... All who worship Jesus will always be reminded of the fact of the depths to which he went to redeem us. His scars will always be a reminder to us of the price that he paid to redeem us. I hope you know Christ. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't give. You don't have to give anything if you don't want to. If you want to, it's great. But we're basically saying if this is your church, if you love what God's doing here, it's a way for us to give back generously. We're going to respond by singing singing praise to Christ. I could tell you, raise your hands, it's a great thing, but I'm, I'm going to say it is a wonderful thing. 
This is part of the sermon where a lot of times pastors are like, it's my time to manipulate you. I'm not going to manipulate you. But I do want you to know that raising your hands is a good thing. I'm going to tell you, you have to. It's a wonderful thing. Like a child raising his hands to his father. I'm going to tell you that getting on your knees and bending your knees in absolute, utter surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords is a wonderful thing. You don't have to do it, but I'm going to tell you, it's an amazing thing to just get on your knees and position yourself, your body, and your heart to say, God, you are king over all things, including this heart. You guys, to be really honest with you, I read passages like this. I have been worked over and over. I read these passages, and I, and I and honestly just worked from time to time, just overwhelmed with the sense of God's greatness of what he has in store for those of us who love him. We're gonna worship. I want you to worship. I want you to know Christ. We're gonna respond also by partaking of communion. We have a station back there and over there. It's a way for you to remember what Christ did. If you're not a Christian, don't take a communion. Something that you do in terms of a relationship that you have with Christ. If you don't know Christ, you wanna be made into a right relationship with him, trust him today. We're going to sing, worship, lift our songs of praise, take communion, give generously. I'm going to pray. I encourage you to enter in. If you're here, you're not a Christian, I urge you, let go of your sin. It brings death. And trust in the grace that God's shown and the mercy through his son, slaughtered lamb, conquering king. Jesus, we thank you that we serve an amazing God. He's not just the conquering king shouting orders for us to do, but he's a vulnerable, humble, gentle lamb who came to suffer and die, proving to us the lengths and the depths to which he would go to save us from our arrogance, our obstinance, our offense, and our defilement. God, we humbly surrender our hearts to you and just say we, we love you. We want to worship you. We want to give to you the tithes, our offerings, our songs, our sin. Lay it at your feet. And in return, receive your goodness, your grace, your love, your kindness. We respond to you.